were born before the wind Also younger than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic Oh, I now hear the sailors cry Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit And welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, a place where we talk about truth and wisdom wherever it might be found. And today's guest is a shining light of hope in that area. Natalie Wig Stevenson is my favorite kind of theologian. She combines the best of scholarly approach with a lively curiosity and warm personality to make challenging approaches to faith accessible. Her book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art, asks the reader to stop trying to define or describe God and instead experience making God manifest and accessible in a very real way. It's a prayer that takes us into and out of the unknowing. She also embraces her own personal spiritual experiences from her Pentecostal roots to her own fresh transformational mysticism with deep roots and theological tradition. Natalie has a master's, master's degrees and a PhD from Vanderbilt and an MDiv from Yale Divinity School, is a professor of contextual education and theology at Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto, and her vibe is really fine, and I really enjoyed our conversation a great deal. I think that my first my first uh, impression was the most amazing thing is that uh, all, the entire book is that you were licensed at First Baptist Church of Nashville and you found a group of Baptists willing to go where you wanted to take them on this journey. How did that happen? Well, I mean, first of all, a lot of what happens in the book is not what we necessarily did at First Baptist. So they right. are one um, sort of one stream of thought that gets woven into the entire performance of the book. Gotcha. Uh, but that being said, I was a member at First Baptist. I was deeply committed to the community there. I felt the call uh, to ministry there. And they affirmed that we were both hearing God's voice in that call. Um, and so that was something we navigated together. I think the book has, uh, well, I've become more radical theologically uh, since then, um, although I was very progressive at the time already. Uh, but, but yeah, I've definitely gone in some new directions with this book since those days. Although I remain friends with a number of people from the community there. Right. It, it, uh, nothing, I, I noticed I'd heard, listened to one other podcast you did and I, I read some interview. Uh, I, I didn't find anything shocking. Maybe it's my age or maybe it's just that I've covered so many things. Nothing shocks me. To me, the most vulgar thing was the comment the old man made when you did your sermon to get licensed. That was, that offended me more than anything else in the- <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it. Oh, uh, thank you for being offended by that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit well, par course in my world. But yeah, that one, I think because so uh, the story is that I had just finished my licensing sermon, and a man on my ordination committee uh, reported back a statement from one of the pillars of the church who had said, "Can't understand a word she said, but I sure did enjoy watching her say it." And, you know, often I'd be able to shake something like that off, especially in those days where I was in a church where um, that might be a more common thing to say. And yet in that moment, because I had just been preaching, because I had been so vulnerably open to God to try to share the word with the community there, um, I think I was feeling particularly 
porous, particularly open, and so the comment certainly hit me much more intensely than it usually usually would. And especially in that power dynamic of a person who was actually on my committee uh, giving that information to me as if it was positive, as if that's something, the kind of quote-unquote feedback I would want in the moment of trying to lean into a call that I had from God. Well, having been raised in the deep-fried Southern Baptist Church, it didn't surprise me at all. It just uh, it just never... But it's interesting, though, because one of the things that attracted me to um, the book when I was just getting a, just a, a, great, a great overview of it was... Um, a premise that I have for decades, I have sort of made the comments that church really um, is vaudeville. I mean, only missing the juggler. That's the only thing that's missing. They, they have an opening act, a main act, and a couple of side acts, and then they close out and they pass the hat around. Although I did I did a search one time and realized there are more Christian jugglers than I would have expected, so they could actually bring that in. So the showbiz, the performance element of it, um, I sort of see that, although to call some of what I've seen as art is a little bit generous. But I want to back up before we jump too far into that, and I want to talk about um, your um, spiritual background. Uh, what is your first memory of anything that you could be classified as spiritual, religious? Oh my, I can't, let's see. Um, I mean, I just think that I was probably aware of some kind of spiritual dimension to life from the get-go. I went to Catholic school as a child, and so early, and I was a Protestant. Uh, my family wasn't particularly religious, but I was baptized as a child. I grew up in England, so that's kind of the norm there to baptize your kids, um, and or at least it was you know, 40 plus years ago. And so, um, yeah, I went to Catholic school. I was one of the very few Protestants in the school, so I would say my early faith formation was one of being uh, sort of drawn to the mystery of God through Catholic practices while also feeling kind of alienated from that because there were certain practices that I wasn't able to partake of. And I don't fault them for that. That's the Catholic practice. But I do have very visceral memories of standing on the line while my friends were getting communion and I would have to cross my hands over my chest and take a blessing, which just didn't feel as good. It was clear that the bread was the thing that you really wanted. Um, and those wafers just used to just captivate my imagination. I so desperately wanted to know what they tasted like. And then, you know, now I go to an Anglican church. I know they're not very good at all, but <laughs> then they seemed like the height of uh, the height of the divine um, obviously because of the liturgy that surrounded them. So that would be earlier memories um, of faith formation. But And I wouldn't necessarily call those bad, even though they come with a certain kind of exclusion or exclusivity. Um, I still think that they really shaped a deep sense of mystery of God and the value of rituals and liturgies that um, you know don't tell us the answers but invite us into the experience. It's interesting because I see at least some echoes. Again, I've only read the book once, so I don't. I don't this is not. I'm not some sort of authority on what you just written. That's the only thing I've read by you. So, but I do see some echoes of that in the idea of as in your progressive faith and in other as as a, a woman and as other things that there are other places in your faith journey where you've been on the outside looking in and not allowed to participate fully or had to to do something to. Um, take your seat at the table. Is that is that a fair analysis? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, I now think that my next book should be called A Woman and Other Things. That's a pretty fantastic phrase. Um, but yeah, for sure. In my first book, there's even a line about, I may have just been do and the first book is about, um, it's, it's a more direct ethnographic engagement with the, the work that I did in the basement theologically with the members at First Baptist. Um, but I say in that opening was when I came to the end of this research, I realized I might just have a scrappy personality that likes to insert myself into places where I don't belong. Um, and that would be the sort of cynical way of looking at what I do. And yet the deep uh, dissonant belonging that can happen in situations like that, I think is really, is really powerful. I think God works in our connections across difference and, um, that that seems to be the case for me certainly um but yeah i mean there's stories in the book about how you know i was for a while the only woman in my graduate program and that was a very painful experience or um yeah just kind of feeling like the odd one out now at this point though i would say i've kind of lost the odd one out experience you know i'm at a point in my career where i feel like i have that seat at the table and it's always a bit jarring um when I don't. And so I feel like it's incumbent on me now to attend to those who don't have the seat at the table um, to ensure that I'm not putting up those safeguards uh, that other people once put up against me. Yeah, and that, that's interesting because it seems like it frees you up to to see things in that, particularly as we age, and I'm older, a bit older than you, but you, you, you one, you don't have the visceral response. You're you're not as concerned about what other people are saying or thinking. You take your seat at the table and you try to use it to help other people, which I, I think that's very interesting. We, we are of the same tribe when it comes to that sort of approach, I think. Um, who were some of your greatest influences as you were growing up and were you an avid reader? Um, I was quite an avid reader. I, I was in England. I loved Enid Blyton. <laughs> I loved, oh, I'm trying to think of the na Nancy Drew. I mean, I, I loved these sort of... Uh, well, com community, stories about communities of friends uh, doing interesting stuff together. Um, yeah, I was an avid reader through my teens as well. I, I suppose I've always, I've always now got three or four books on the go, plus my own collection of magazines. Like you say, for me, it's the New York Review of Books that I'm always... I had to cancel my New Yorker because it was like judgment arriving in my mailbox. <laughs> but it was beautiful judgment. <laughs> Beautiful judgment, but I can never crack the pages, so I switched to the New York Review of Books because at least it doesn't come as often. But then they send me down a million rabbit holes of books I want to read too. Um, yeah, anyways, it does my heart good to hear somebody else say they have three or four books going all the time because I I, I feel like it's it's a, a slowly eroding group of people who do that. But I it, it's so wonderful to hear somebody else say that. Well, I like to have a fiction, a nonfiction. When I'm at my best, remembering to have something to do with my scholarly discipline, and then just something random, <laughs> something like put some random. Bingo! Yeah, you hit, hit all the points there. That was really. <laughs> at what uh, point did theology yeah. show up on the radar of something you were interested in? Well, first of all, you mentioned community. What was your community like growing up? What, did you have a, a good, a solid community? Did you grow up in a? You said England, so what was it like? Yeah, I think. That's a really good question. I haven't thought about that, but we did. Um, my my mom had a circle of friends from our school, and I would say almost every day we'd end up at somebody's house, the moms and the kids, and the mom 
well, I can imagine now what the moms are doing being a mom myself. And uh, the kids just played together every day and uh, sort of developed shared interests, drew each other into different interests. But I have this great memory of um, us all, like, like 10 people piling into my mom's uh, Volkswagen Beetle, like the old one, um, to go to someone's house. And I just remember us all like sitting on each other. This is obviously would be very illegal now, but sitting on each other's laps, people in the trunk, like <laughs> we were just, just crammed as many people in as we could so that we could go and just have a really fun afternoon together. And that kind of marks my entire childhood. I also had a um, pretty significant relationship with my grandmother who took care of me a lot. And so there was a community in her home as well where we would all be together. Uh, but yeah, when I look at childhood and the communities that were there, I had a harder time making friends than school, to be honest. But that after school community was really important. And at what point did you begin to know you had an interest in theology? Well, I think from a young age, I, ha I was like that annoying kid in class who had a, a list of way too many questions about God, uh, who would take the lesson off track. And uh, I, I can imagine that was very frustrating to my teachers. But, um, you know, then I had a conversion experience as a teen and uh, into evangelical charismatic, uh, first evangelical and then charismatic evangelical Christianity. And I just was so curious to unpack that experience and, and know more about it, but generally found theological resor resources in that uh, milieu not particularly helpful um, for helping shape my encounter with the divine. And then in university, I started studying religion, and that took my thinking a little deeper, but it was really when I went to divinity school, there was this explosion of ways, contextual ways to think about God um, and by extension to engage with God that um, that were really revolutionary for me. So feminist and queer and critical race um, theologies, but also getting to know the historical traditions more deeply as well. Um, we had an incredibly active chapel in our school. And so um, in my master's, uh, daily chapel services with a long service on Fridays with the Eucharist. And of everything, I I think part participating in a very creative, daily different uh, practice of worship was probably what ignited my theological imagination. Now, was that at Yale or Vanderbilt? That was at Yale. We just had weekly chapel at Vanderbilt, okay. but the Yale chapel was, it was under, I was there during the time of Siobhan Garrigan's mm -hmm. uh, ship of the chapel, and she's a brilliant liturgical theologian. And she was just open to experimentation always grounded in historical Christian practices, but always improvising with them um, in ways that, you know, every day it was something so creative that, uh, but also grounded creative, that that helped me see the theology of practice. Well, and you planted the seeds too with art history in your undergrad at McMaster. What, what, what was your interest in art when you went into undergrad? Well, we had a very small art history department that was mostly Renaissance art. We had a couple of Renaissance specialists and not much else. Uh, in my last year, we had um, a much younger feminist art historian join the faculty. And with her, I studied performance art. And that's where things really took off. I would say, you know, I, I loved learning history through the art that was created in different contexts throughout history. But then all of a sudden the art was 
really generating um, experiences in a way that sort of opened up fresh understanding of the context around me and my own spirituality, my own ways of relating to other people and to God. And so it was the performance art that I mean, obviously, that's what the book is about. Um, but it was the performance art that really, you know, it involved me in a different kind of way. I'm so glad I managed to overlap with uh, with this faculty person while I was there. Yeah, I want to talk some more about the performance art in a second. I, I just one of the things I just kind of took some notes as I was reading your your book, and I um I I felt like I was uh, walking through an outdoor museum at the golden hour, and you were kind of shining some really interesting light on a lot of lot of topics which you you avoided it at, at any point making judgments and um making coming to conclusions i'm sure that was intentional oh yeah for sure i so and you know there's a number of um narratives through the book that we would be tempted i think to make ethical judgments about as well as these artworks and part of what i wanted to push in the book was not making a claim for who I think God is or what's right or wrong or how we should act in the world, but actually just opening up these uh, intensely imaginative spaces that are nevertheless crafted by the historical traditions of of Christianity, um, but don't, don't quite align with the orthodoxy, not to try to, or just operating just to the side of the orthodoxy. And so that the questions of right and wrong or correct or incorrect or orthodoxy and heterodoxy um, good and evil are not what are the drive the drivers of the journey, but instead I think of the chapters as rooms that you walk into, hang out for a little bit, see what happens, and then, in in sort of a formative sense, by opening yourself up to, to mystery, to unexpected, to things you might not even want to open yourself up to, and then move along. So they're really intended to be, sort of these not ethical statements, but aesthetic ones, um, aesthetic activities rather than, um, yeah, ethical activities. Well, art has largely, um, at least performance art, other than the homily and the sermon, have been largely absent from the church for forever. I know when I was in seminary in California, I was in the 70s, I was doing stand-up, and I would do stand-up on mm. Friday, Saturday night, and then preach on Sunday morning. And it began to occur to me, my approach was really different. I was like, why is my approach so different when I'm actually know that I'm on stage when I don't recognize being on stage in the pulpit? It was an interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of inner discussion I was having. And also at the time, um, you know, you weren't supposed to enjoy ministry as much, that much. <laughs> you did stand up. You were supposed to. It was a calling and it was serious and serious, people yeah. didn't, if you tried the humor, boy, it did not go over very well most of the time. The same thing that had people screaming in the clubs did not have them smiling at church. So when you say that about stand up, do you mean you tended to take a more sort of homiletical approach to doing stand up and the stand up would kind of make its way into your preaching? Yeah, it, it did. It began to both, both. in fact, I became, uh, the way it found its way in stand up was it became more stories than just, you know, jokes, uh, a more storied approach to, uh, which worked pretty well. But when yep. I tried to bring a more humorous, you know, um, you know, approach a good uh, one example. I always remember that fell flat that I thought was really funny was uh, during the Advent. I was preaching a sermon on the 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 uh, wise man and the star and stuff. I said, you know, God sent a star. I said a map would have been more helpful. You know, <laughs> you know 
but it's just nothing. I mean, just crickets. I thought, okay. I just, I just, I don't remember what the rest of the jokes I had to go with that were, but um, it, um, it is interesting that we've, like I said, it, it there, there is, it is showbiz in some sense, and I don't mean that to diminish people's uh, what people find meaningful about it, but um, having grown up around, you know. Um, the revivalist era, the late 50s and 60s, where you would have a week with the world's tallest evangelist or some odd, you know, <laughs> some gimmick to get people to come to uh, to see this. Or, you know, uh, that, that's why I thought when you started, I know performance art is, is a little different than that, but in a sense it's not. There's some, some very strong ties between those two. Um, I do think, you know, the examples you gave in the book are, are more... Um, more textured and layered, a little more subtle, but the, the idea that uh, there are still people I know that if I mention, you know, the idea that it's somewhat theatrical or offended by the idea that churches in any way performance wouldn't, they, 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 they can't, they've separated so their ideas of church and everything else that it, it is the old secular, you know, um, sacred idea that seems to still hold tight in some of the old traditional churches. There is, the, I mean, I say this in the book too. I think um, we have sort of an outside, oversized valuing of what we typically would call authenticity in our culture, and this expectation that there has to be some serious alignment between, not even alignment, that we, when we are, our public selves need to be our internal or our private selves to such a degree um, that I think there's just this allergic reaction when we say we're doing something that is a kind of performance, whether in the pulpit or I, I have found this with teaching as well. I spent some time training doctoral students in how to and how to teach in theological education. And we talked about their teaching persona. And it took some time to get them to see that they had one. Um, because when I say, you know, what, who are you as a, as a teacher versus who are you, you know, when you're at home with your family or out with your friends or in the quiet of your prayer, who are you as a teacher? They wanted to say all those things were the same. And I tried to explain to them, well, first of all, that's just exhausting. And second of all, you're not giving your students the best of what you have to offer if that's the route that you're taking. Um, that's not what your students need. Your students need for you to be able to um, obviously drawn aspects of who you are, but this is a different kind of relationship with you, you have with your students. And there's a certain performative element to that. Um, I think it's the same in the pulpit. And part of that performative element, especially in the pulpit, I think is not undermining our authenticity, but instead is enlarging who we are in a way that lets the spirit or invites the spirit, the spirit can do what she wants, but invites the spirit to actually participate in what we're doing. There's something I think in the performance aspect that makes what we're doing bigger than ourselves and recognizes that we cannot do these things on our own. Whether you interpret that through a particular view of God in the pulpit or even in the classroom, I think the largeness of that performance is a way of harnessing the energy of the students as well so that they're genuinely perform uh, participating in the teaching learning experience. To not bring that performance presumes actually that I have knowledge to impart to them rather than something larger than all of us together is generating the knowledge and the understanding among us. So I, I strongly shy away from and, and actually reject ideas that we need to be authentic. I think people who live with certain forms of social privilege have power to be more quote unquote authentic than 
than others because their, again, quote-unquote, authenticity is more valued in the culture. Um, but, but yeah, I think that performative element actually, as with performance art, takes seriously that we're all creating something together and, and that I cannot do it on my own. But also I think there's an element of acknowledging the work you've done and how successful it was. I mean, I, I, we used to joke about, uh, you know, coming, leaving the pulpit and go, when I was in seminary and going back and somebody would say, how'd it go? Oh, hell, I killed it, man. I killed it. But other people were like, it was all God. It was not, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nothing just me. But, you know, the people who were really enjoying it were like, no, I mean, it was, we killed. It was great. You know, but it just there is that. But I know I was raised and I've been reexamining a lot of things and sort of evaluating over the last oh, several decades now. Uh, and you write a little bit about this in the book. But I, I really believe that the tradition I was raised in, all the way really through seminary, and I went to Golden Gate and Southern, um, really did more to sever me from my inner self rather than feed my inner self, the kind of things you're talking about. It didn't encourage that. It was really about sub, you know, subduing your, your own desires and urges and thoughts and everything and trying to sanctify everything in a sense that made no sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... I think there are so many practices that we can engage with that have, on the one side, the capacity to liberate and draw us into fullness of who we are, and at the same time have just as much power to to control us and um, oppress us. And, I mean, I would certainly say that part of this book is trying to reclaim the sort of ecstatic and liberative parts of a charismatic evangelical history that was controlling and damaging in a lot of ways. And I kind of reached the point in life where I thought, I don't, I don't want to let that part of my life where I truly did encounter the divine in some rich and wild ways, I don't want to bracket that part off like it, it, it was a holy bad thing. Holy W-H-O-L. Right. <laughs> Not holy, holy. Um, that I don't want to treat that like it was only bad and it only hurt me because that's just not true. And so I don't want to move on. What I want to avoid too is kind of moving into a sort of progressive approach to Christianity, which also has many gifts to offer, but also isn't perfect. Um, so instead, I wanted to think, well, how do I get back to that ecstatic place with all I've learned along the way? How do I get back? Or not even get back. How do I draw into my current life? the good parts, the nourishing parts, the places where I truly did encounter God um, in the midst of, of practices that also kind of hurt. Yeah, and I have found in, in many, many times outside of the uh, Christian envelope, um, people who seem to have a better grasp of the mystic and the magic and the wonder and the wildness of faith that seems to have been uh, chased out of the church in many instances. <laughs> sure. For sure. And yet I find myself still wanting to ground myself in these ancient traditions because they hold me responsible to something more than my own subjective experience. And again, that's part of what I'm trying to do in this project is to say there's tons of stuff in here that is incredible. And there's tons of stuff that's really bad, <laughs> really damaging. It's been used in terrible ways. And yet these are, to a certain degree, the ancestors in whose line I find myself. And so um, I don't and that's where I think the progressive Christianity can fall a bit short because it's sort of you, you work your way through saying what's good, what's bad, what's worth saving, what needs to be rejected rather than, um, you, you know, again, in its most stereotypical version, rather than you know, really digging into the shadow side of these traditions and still like being willing to go to those places where it's hard to imagine there's 
there's still good in there. It's hard to imagine that the divine was somehow present in this massive sin, and yet God was. And so how can we find the God that who's in there too? Well, you mentioned that there was a place where you were questioning belief in God. Was there ever a time when you thought, maybe I'll find my faith in another tradition? Is there a reason you hung on to the Christian tradition? I just, uh, yeah, I didn't. It was my one. So <laughs> did I, I, know, I know people who have, um, you know, been really been able to uh, experience a much richer spirituality, obviously, by leaving Christianity. But, but I still, uh, this is just the one for me. What can I do? It's the one that's in me. I don't have enough years left in my life to start over. That, that being said, um, I... And I, and I think that was a choice in that moment of of intense faith crisis where uh, I could see, um, you know, I didn't believe in God at that moment. That's a very liberating moment. Do I stay or do I go? And I, and I chose to stay until it became true again. Um, now, that being said, I currently teach in a multi-religious, interreligious seminary. And so we're historically a Christian seminary. Um, but we now have programs for uh, students who are Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, and then spiritual but not religious, um, hybrid, and everything that falls into that camp. And I will say, you know, conversations uh, with students about their own religious practice, their own faith, their own spirituality, has expanded and challenged my own. Um, I wouldn't say I have a hybrid practice, although I have students who are very genuine in the way that they do that and really grappling with the tougher parts of having a hybrid practice. But I have, um, you know, my students when they're doing Ramadan, my Muslim students, within a few years they started making me take Lent a lot more seriously. Um, my Buddhist students who uh, sink really, really deep into meditative practices, um, got me searching through Christian medita meditative practices through history and, and practicing those more carefully. Um, my hybrid or spiritual but not religious students who try to be really careful with the traditions they engage so they're not just doing cultural appropriation, they really hold me to task for how I engage the traditions. Um, you know, I've been doing a spiritual practice for the last year that directly came out of an interaction with a spiritual, with a hybrid um, Christian, uh, hybrid student who integrates Christianity, Hinduism, and something else in their practice. Oh, sorry to the student if you're listening to this, I'm forgetting your third, uh, your third <laughs> tradition. Um, but this student does it with such uh, depth and grounding and intensity that they've inspired me to dig into my own traditions more, um, well, I think in more beautiful and rich ways. And so I've never thought to jump ship, and I haven't necessarily been driven to integrating, so quote-unquote, other religious practices, but rich interactions with people from non-Christian faith traditions have pushed me to take my own more seriously. Yeah, and one of the reasons I started this podcast was, and just one of the catchphrases is to find truth wherever we can find it, is... Um, I began to discover, and, and a little bit akin to what you were saying there is, uh, you know, I, it's hard for me to change that lens, and I'm not sure I want to, but it, it, the questioning and the deconstruction and the demolition and everything else I've done, but when I began to read um, not only scholars, but even popular spiritual writers of other traditions, 
everything I saw seemed to be filtered through that lens of, of Christianity and there, the connection there was so deep and abiding that I was really pretty amazed that more of that's not being used. Um, it just, you know, truth resonates where, whatever culture it comes from. And um, so I, that's been my experience. I know, I know even, even in, you know, the more modern uh, people like Ram Dass and Alan Watts and some of these folks, if you, you read them from a completely uh, uneducated, agnostic view of, of faith in the world, there is so much truth and stuff, and there's so many things in that are connected to even Christian tradition that was not intentional, I think. Oh, yeah, and I find, I mean, I'm supervising the uh, thesis of a, of a Buddhist student right now who is in this Christian space because he he's working on a... Um, uh, queering Buddhism, and so because I do queer theology, uh, there are resources he wants to draw on from the Christian traditions, and he wants to do his work in a place where the fact that he's a practitioner of his traditions matters rather than a religious studies uh, location. And the conversations with him where we come to these places where our traditions are so close, feel even overlapping, and I think modern liberal Protestantism has been deeply influenced by Buddhism, um, but but where that overlapping occurs, and then we find a place of difference, and it's that it's that little location of nuanced difference where the learning really starts to happen. Like, mm -hmm. not just the overlap, but the okay. So if you're understanding this concept that on the surface seems the same, this way, and I'm understanding it this way, how does that challenge what I'm thinking? How does it help me reshape it and um, imagine or practice it anew? And I mean, though, that's why I love supervising students and across these multi-religious differences. When you get to those really deep places, um, at, at the heart of motivation or um, disposition, why why we do the things we do, then they they sink me into my own practices in a much more personal and intimate way. Well, and also for me, there's still the pragmatic of how does this make life better for me or for anybody else? And, and when those translate, th those are the places I see the convergence really powerfully sometimes is what we're both doing here is doing this to try to help this or help me become more self-actualized or to help somebody else, you know, find justice or they're, they're the common things in there are pretty powerful. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, we can't talk about the book without talking about sex. Um, you, you mentioned the Southern Baptist uh, no, group, not, not knowing how to talk about sex at all. I think it reaches beyond Baptist because I know dozens of people in my generation who grew up in, you know, mainline traditional Christian churches and even charismatic churches that were sort of robbed of healthy and adequate understandings of sex and sexual desire. And it's taken years to try to rediscover their sexuality. The Beatrice's holy orgasm you talked about um, would have been a revelation to a generation of kids who'd been given so much vague and ridiculous messaging about sexuality. And I, I recognize it's been worse for women, but it's exactly been a picnic for the young men hitting puberty in that oppressive atmosphere. I think it's why so many of those things come out sideways. Um, I, I appreciated you mentioned, you know, some of the lame attempts, such as Wild Heart and Captivating, that made things worse. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how, just kind of jumping around here, but to the erotic language can illuminate religious language? Well, sure. Well, I think uh, um, erotic language and spiritual language both have the capacity to cut to the heart of who we are and where we make ourselves, where the 
challenges and possibilities of intimacy and connection reside. Uh, I think erotic is different. Uh, it overlaps with, but is also different than sex, um, but is most evident in sex um, and talk about sex. So the erotic I think of as the sort of uh, ecstatic, um, pulsing uh, fringe of existence um, that is the place where we kind of meld with another. And that's the place, of course, of intense vulnerability where we have to choose whether or not to give ourselves over um, or to receive the other um, or, or not. And so I think that language is very resonant with the kinds of ways we talk about, again, our porousness with the divine, the willingness to, do we want to put up a wall to keep ourselves very safe with God? Do we want to take that wall down? How far are we willing to go? I think all that language connects, but that, that depth of desire we can feel in a sexual relationship, in an erotic relationship, you know, friendships can have that kind of exuberant dimension to them. Um, and in a divine relationship, all of those are about uh, the intensity of intimacy and vulnerability um, that comes with desiring another. And I think that the element of fear is, is joined there as well. Letting go to trust uh, both your spiritual gut and your physical gut on things like that. I think that was I think that was one of the strongest points you made in some in the book talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, again, progressive Christianity can kind of uh, erase the fear that's present there, um, the risk and the fact that you don't just automatically trust. Trust is a relational, uh, trust is relational, trust is earned, trust is um, built through continual interactions that uh, that allow us to trust more and more. Trust is broken and needs to be mended. Um, all these parts, you know, the you can't clean those things up. You really just can't. When you clean them up, it just means you're sitting on the surface or uh, as a picture sitting on a wall looking on both sides but refusing to to, to take one side or the yeah. other. Maybe. Um, but, uh, yeah, when you, when you mix together these different discourses of desire, then you're really getting into the how messy and scary and exciting it is to connect with with God. I, I can't let go of the fact that God is terrifying, um, that God could destroy me, um, but that God is the one who holds me and saves me. You know, there's, I, I don't really understand Christianities that, that just want to erase all of that as if God isn't absolutely immense and terrifying. Um, yeah, well, I understand why people want to erase that. Nevertheless, I don't think it's possible. Well, and you, um, Talk about the, that, and you it was in, in your book is in the context of, of Mary, but the idea of the wild danger of divine human loving. Um, it, how how does that fit in the overall with the wildness of God? I, you know, it, it, of course, in my mind, it. it um, I ran to Chesterton's uh, "The Man Who Was Thursday." You know, the wildness of God and that kind of stuff. But uh, how how does the overall wildness of God? fit into mysticism and and rooting out that fear and that kind of thing? Well, I think the wildness of God is an invitation to us to be wild, too. And it's hard to be wild, but it's wonderful to be wild. When we live in such a controlled environment, we never can just sort of, you know, people look for ways to let loose, um, you know, whether that's through uh, drugs or uh, uh 
you know, wild dancing or, you know, there's lots of different ways people try to let loose. And it's rare as Christians. We talk about the fact that there's a wildness to God who inspires and draws out and longs for our wildness, too. Um, I think that is incredibly present in charismatic evangelicalism, even in some forms of just regular evangelicalism. And that's something that people don't know when you see, you know, the public face of evangelical uh, practice, you know, that's <laughs> certainly not evident in the way right. they present in their politics. But there is a there is an an engagement with the wildness of God that does allow for a certain wildness in those traditions. And I um, I don't find them in progressive Christianity in the same way. And so or or at all. And so, uh, yeah, I want to be invited into that. I, for me, faith is about you know not consenting or assenting to the right things, but more about being invited into the divine life for mo- unexpected moments of uh, joy and pleasure and hope and and wildness too yeah and that you're right i mean i know um you talked about coming in evangelical uh charismatic tradition you know, and i came through the jesus movement where it, what, there, there was a lot of times if you would hear some groups talking you wouldn't know if they were talking about lord of the rings or the bible um, <laughs> it was the uh you know because they there was a true deep belief that um, that uh, there was something more than we could see and something more to it than we could figure out and um, I don't know I think that was a it was a powerful time um, but it, it that the idea that allowing God to take over is is a frightening concept and it has been for mystics throughout the ages yeah absolutely and and so many I think it's common well, like we said earlier with the preaching, uh, sort of like, oh, I did a really good job versus, oh, that was all God. Um, but if it was all God, I feel like it would be wilder. <laughs> yeah, know? no kidding. That's, that's the best God can do. That's, that's the best he's got. I it's like, really? There wasn't anything, you know, intense to that. But, um, you know, I'm sure God is, I'm not going to negate those practices either. I'm sure God can be very happy to reveal God's self through very, uh, waspy experiences as well. Um, and yet, uh, I think we have many global traditions that, uh, and in my own, um, yeah, my own lineage as well that are, uh, that are aware of the porousness of reality much more than sort of modern European, uh, approaches that we've inherited in the Americas, uh, through colonization than, than those allow. We've had the, the problems or the struggles of modernity and Christianity aren't about whether or not you believe in evolution. They're about the forcing of a spiritual practice into a solely empirical um, mode that requires factual proof for anything to appear true and the complete binding and closing up of the the porous space between what we can and can't see, between um, what we can and can't touch or be touched by. Uh, there's a... There's a porousness to reality that if we can remember that Christianity gives us significant resources to access. But when we refuse that porousness, then I'm I'm not sure that the the doctrines, the songs, the liturgies, um, I'm not sure that they reveal God uh, to the degree that God wants to be revealed. That kind of leads to my next, I had a question I was going to ask you to explain a little more of what you meant when you write A Pursuit of God Through Negation, Through the Continual Rupture and Rearrangement of Our Knowing. Mm. I think what I mean is we can think that we've got it right, 
And academic theology is, uh, it makes an argument. It makes an, and, you know, an argument that can be more or less aggressive, but it's always making a claim about who and what God is. And it's like, uh, I think this reaches its height in social Trinitarianism. It's like, if we just get this doctrine right and we explain it well enough, then God's going to be like, all right, yep, you're right, you've got me, now you can be good and ethical people. Um, and if our theology is wrong, then that binds us to being uh, not ethical people. Um, but I want to use theological language in a way that's not trying to get it right, but is trying to keep undoing itself in a way that creates these cracks, um, the, uh, the, the openness, the um, porosity through which God actually then can become present. And so I want to use theological language, theological discourse in a way that's not trying to say something true about God, but is creating this performative space that knows it's not correct, um, but nevertheless is trying to mess with reality as we perceive it in a way that creates these little fissures in reality through which the divine can greet us. I think theology needs to be an invitation and an invocation for the divine uh, rather than a description. And I like the phrase you write. You said, you, I allow myself to be bathed in the fading light of whatever has been declared useless. That kind of fits into what you're talking about there a little bit. Oh, yeah. I think I, I think that's not me. I think I'm quoting that. Oh, okay. Some, well, whoever wrote that, I give them, you're, you're very me. kind to give them credit. What is the old idea? The first time you give credit, the second time you say somebody said, and the third time you just quote it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the undead undetonated energies of past revolutions i think that was the, that's it i really like that yeah 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 so good that's elizabeth freeman i believe or heather love but i'm pretty sure it's elizabeth freeman but that really fits what you were just explaining that's a really great you know um, picture of that um uh, moving along uh, one of the things uh your your charismatic background is really showing when you talk about locking the doors on the spirit who roams how does the spirit roam well, in that moment, I'm picturing a, a tiger or a lion snarling around the edges, right. um, coming for us. And I think in the spirit chapters, I'm trying to picture the spirit so many different ways because the spirit manifests to us in so many different ways. But the spirit who roams is, in in my mind, I, I'm really picturing that. I can feel that line when you say it because I know I was picturing this great lion coming at the edges of our of our world to kind of find us um well, yeah not a, not a lion not i suppose i've just realized i've just kind of gone into a lion the witch in the wardrobe mode i didn't mean to do that <laughs> flesh, so what can i do um, <laughs> yeah you can't your your background always surfaces uh you also said the holy spirit hungers for more than we can give or receive um mm. do you i mean is that something you embrace do you really well, I'm not great at embracing that. I mean, who is? I long to embrace that. And I think so much of this book is also trying to shake me out of my complacency. You know, you can read it as me trying to shake you out of your complacency. Um, but when it comes down to it, I'm trying to push myself with that book further than I can go. And I, what I hadn't anticipated with that was just being able to have wonderful conversations with people about it afterwards um, in a way that holds me to a sort of responsibility for what I've written and what I've pursued there. You know, we go back to our normal lives. This is the final chapter is quite practical after all the wild play of the first five. And this idea that you can't stay in the ecstatic mode forever. There's always going to be the return to the everyday and the loss of the magic. And I 
think I actually quote the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in that chapter. You can never go back the same way twice. Um, and yet in these conversations, I'm reminded of, oh, yeah, that is a thing I said. That is a thing that I was trying to lean into as 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 true about how I should be in this world as a child of God. Um, I, I need to give that one some more thought in my daily prayers tomorrow and and see if I can lean just a little bit more into that danger. Uh, you're also right that overprotecting God from humanity also overprotects humanity from God. To keep ourselves and by extension God safe from all our sin and muck, we keep ourselves safe from the gifts of God too. How have you seen that in your own experience? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, well, what I find myself bothered by is theologies that just want to guard God against us so much to preserve God's omnis. Um, I was just speaking with a theologian this week, Hannah Reichel, who's working on theologies, sort of anti-omniscient theologies, and I'm excited to see their work on this because I think this, um, there's a lot of talk about how God is vulnerable uh, in progressive Christianity, but not um, not digging into the how and the why, and that vulnerability is always quite beautiful and lovely and glowy. But if God's truly vulnerable to us in some way, then that really makes God vulnerable. I mean, it, in a sense, it opens up the possibility that we can hurt and destroy God. And that's where we quickly put the line. You know, God can be vulnerable, but not be hurt. Um, God can be vulnerable, but without God's perfection being damaged. And again, I don't want to say that God's not perfect, that God's not powerful, all all the things that we would affirm in the Orthodox traditions. But I want to push on them a little bit to say, you know, if we're making these strong bordered claims, then what are we cutting off for ourselves? If we're protecting um, if we're protecting vulnerability that goes one degree further than we want it to go, then are we truly being vulnerable to God? I don't think so. I think we have to move into the danger zones a little bit more if we're to really allow God to move into us as well. And that these projections of protecting God are um, are really projections of how much we want ourselves to be protected. Well, is so is God self-sufficient or does he need humanity? I don't I mean that's a classic question. I <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's why I threw it at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean I what I would want to throw back is uh, what what if we play with both? What if we sink into both and ask ourselves I mean truly I can't know the answer to that. You can't know the answer to that. There's a thousand different potential answers to that. Um, and then, you know, thousands more sub answers to that to be found in the Christian traditions. And that's part of what I'm trying to do here. Rather than saying, which one is right. it? What if we said, um, you know, and there's orthodox versions of both. Sure. And so what if we twisted each one and saw what happened when we did? If God was, uh, what were my choices, self-sufficient or? Uh, or is he dependent on humanity? Yeah, let's play with the dependent on humanity a little bit. Um, you know, there are theologies that have that done in a, in a neat and tidy way. You know, even process theology has an, a neatness and tidiness to it. Um, but what if that dependence was like what I do with diagnosing God with dementia in the first chapter and the kind of dependence that asks of humanity in terms of relating to God in order to embody God's agency in the world? Um, I want to, rather than saying God is or isn't dependent, I want to say, what is the character of that dependence? And once we picture that dependence, 
Um, what does that call us to? Well, in that chapter, I talk about it calls us to practices of attunement um, rather than empathy. It calls us to particular listening practices that disrupt our traditional modes of listening. It calls us to creativity. It calls us to being willing to engage God in the ways that uh, we've already deemed problematic as good liberals. Um, you know, again, if we are, if that if that is not particularly damaging to us. Um, I've said in another podcast somewhere, it's, um, I would never tell people to call God Father if that would hurt them. But for me, for a while, and even still, I've reclaimed that language because there's something in it that was once meaningful to me. And so that's more what I would want to ask. What is the quality of the dependence? What's the character of the dependence? What, what when we twist it just a little bit, becomes possible? Yeah, Same I like that. I like that because you know, my initial visceral reaction from the tradition I, I, that I've grown up in and studied in, um, it has been used more as a shame-based approach than anything else. You know, if you don't do this for God, these people will fill in the blank, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Die of hunger, go to hell, whatever you want to play with that. Well, and I think the other part was, you know, when I was working with these folks in the basement, <laughs> in the theology classes... Um, they were really uh, open to the idea that God was, God could be lonely, and God created out of God's loneliness. They had no interest in sort of measuring that up against other completely orthodox views that they had. But then I wanted to do something with that and say, okay, well, if God created because God was lonely, what if God was lonely because God's self-sufficiency was revealed to be inadequate? And how can we think about that self-sufficiency the falseness of that self-sufficiency in the way that we are we do we're doing now with realizing um sort of the modern view of the self as autonomous and how that shores up a very particular understanding of a white cis straight male um etc the call the colonial construction of what it is to be a self what if we saw that and used our realization of the insufficiency of that to really begin to think about the loneliness of God? So not just, you know, God's lonely and we're so lovely and God wants us, but more what's going on in the character of God um, through time that and how, how did God try to deal with that loneliness? Uh, what are the attempts at creativity God pursued to try and um break God's own self-sufficiency. That's not orthodox. That's not allowed. There's a whole bunch of problems in what I've just said, but there's a lot of relational stuff too that can, again, sort of stimulate encounters with the divine that we might not otherwise perceive. Well, that's an entire podcast. We'll have to do that one again sometime. Uh, <laughs> you, you write that one of the challenges is not to become bitter and hopeless. Uh, you, one of your, the phrase you wrote was, we all linger together in this in-between space. What is the in-between space? I think that's the in-betweenness of time and space. How's that? How's that <laughs> okay, Webster. <laughs> so, th so that's um, that's in the church chapter, and what? Right. I, and I'd say the church chapter is actually significantly foundational to foundational to the whole project. Um, the church chapter is really where I'm trying to work out the relationship between the uh, empirical work of ethnography and the theological, the normative theological pieces that we. Um, that are, are brought together, you know, that's a significant d debate in ethnographic approaches to theology. And what I'm trying to do there is break both sides of the equation. So 
um, you know, we have a vision of the church that is one, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing, one holy Catholic and apostolic. Um, and then we, we sort of say, that's the true thing about church. This is, again, the debate in ethnographic approaches. Which one do we say is true? The concrete one we've studied, which is a broken mess, or the eschatological one that is one holy, uh, et cetera. And, you know, there's a, there's a push from traditional theologians to ethnographic theologians to say, don't you dare go saying that one you're studying is the true one. Um, this is the true one. And there's a pushback from ethnographic theologians to say, well, what on what basis are you saying the church is Catholic and holy? It's clearly not. And then I think the creative or the more truthful version of that is like, we actually don't have access to the true one. And we need to write theology from the space where both are true or neither are true. Um, we need to write theology from that, from the actual brokenness itself, rather than from one side or the other, or the attempt to reconcile them. Um, actually, the true church is always becoming. And in, in that chapter, I'm using a theory from anthropology that uh, that talks about how we are always writing a culture into being. We're not describing a culture. We don't have ac epistemological access, the kind of knowledgeable access one requires to actually write about a culture. Discourse is always creating a hybrid version of the culture between what is there on the ground and how I'm perceiving it. Um, I'm trying to do something the same, similar with how we write the church. I'm always writing the church into being. The discourse is a part of that coming into being of the church. Um, and that is an in-between space. That's a liminal space because the words are always insufficient to the task. And yet the words are performative and they are generating a version of the church that we can not even look at or believe in, but get swept up in that script as it carries us along to what will be. Well, the, the one other place I think you used that phrase was when you were talking about the church being utterly disfigured. Um, you said something to the effect, I, I didn't take this down as a direct quote, but uh, the church is a place of oddly connected in-betweeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the people who are willing to live again in that uh, in-between space of uh, already not yet, here and there, uh, who place our bodies again in the porousness of reality, who let it let the the imperceivable penetrate us even in, when we don't know what's happening while avoiding making the gatekeepers an idol of god's power <laughs> yeah yes yeah. exactly yeah you mentioned one of the line, this is sort of the speed round we're wrapping up because there's so many other questions here we'll have to do this again sometime but uh how do we put away childish things and still come to christ as a child I don't know. <laughs> Good for you. Like that. Just, see, just see if someone will figure it out and tell me. That's the, that's a paradox. We're supposed it to is. Do both. I don't think we can describe how to do both. My hunch is it just happens sometimes, and then we've got to pay attention and do it. But, um, yeah, I, that's, that's the struggle. You know, some of us want to put away childish things, and others of us want to approach God as a child and one or the other is not sufficient. So how do we do both and neither? I don't know how we do both and neither, but I'd like us to think about it. Yeah. And it made me think, you know, many people at some point lose the childlikeness and some have regained it when they embrace their spiritual walk and spiritual life. They find a new sense of wonder and a new sense of childlikeness. That's what, that's what, 
sort of resonated with me when I was thinking about that. Uh, we haven't done this yet. I, I probably should have asked you this earlier, but define transgressive, transgressive devotion. Okay, so... <laughs> oh, we've got a deep breath here on this one. Defining things. Okay, we'll define this. So so people obviously pick up on the transgressive more than the devotion because it's a fairly transgressive book. I'm taking a lot of things that uh, are can be shocking or offensive, and my claim throughout the book is I'm not trying to shock or offend you, um, although if you are shocked and offended, let's work that into the loop of what's happening here. Um, but I don't want to shock you as in like, oh, you're complacent. Let me wake you up. Rather, I think the shock is intended to take what we know and rearrange it so that we can keep going uh, with that continual unfolding and rearrangement. So the transgressive part is to always disrupt what we think we know or what we actually do know by intervening into that knowing uh, with these um, things that break it. Even if what we know is true, it needs to keep being rearranged um, in order to keep uh, being alive. So that's the transgressive part, but it's not transgression for transgression's sake. Uh, I really, really do, writing this book took me to a deeper place in my relationship with God. Um, and my hope is that by traveling with it, readers will also come to a deeper place with God, if only by being unsettled by it. We do need to be unsettled all the time, I think, to be in the presence of the divine or to recognize the presence of the divine among us. Now, the devotion part, you know, I'm kind of playing off the idea of the old devotionals that <laughs> I never found adequate as an evangelical, even though I longed for one. Um, I'm trying to write... Shortcuts. Uh, you know, Jesus just didn't leave those shortcuts the way we all wanted no, no, not at all. So the devote, yeah, this is a devotional that actually tries to catch you up in its flow. And, um, and yeah, it does it in a transgressive way, but it is a devotional too. That's the part that I want people to remember. It's intended to draw you into a deeper relationship with God. Well, and I think you, 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 you hit your target. Cause I got to admit when I first started it, I, I was worried it was going to be a gimmick, but it didn't turn out to be a gimmick. You did a good job staying away from turning it into some sort of, you know, like you're saying, shocking for shock's sake to move along to make a point. Uh, the the old the never-ending uh, temptation of every pastor who has a great idea to figure out how to make a sermon work with that great idea that has nothing to do with anything but himself. <laughs> but um, that's a really kind thing to say. Thank you. That's what I was going for. What is the role of experience in spirituality? Because you touched on experience in this book. Um, yeah, I tend to think more about encounter than experience, but when I'm talking about experience, it's a few things. It's the experience that I have of encounter with the divine, the experience I hope you have too, and, and the readers have. But it's also, when you think in the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you know, my home base is doing ethnographic research and drawing in the experiences that others have of God as well, of each other, of church, and making that part of the ongoing textual record of theology. Um, so not just what I think about God, but what others have, uh, or not just what I've experienced of God, but what others have too. Um, I want to disrupt the uh, standard authoritative voices by bringing in voices that aren't particularly authoritative to the conversation to give them weight as well. And I think that's what ethnographic theologians are doing in some really powerful ways right now um, to not um, not do away with the traditions, but to really put them in dialogue with the experiences people have. Well, and I think it's, um, you know, to, to find 
somebody who's trying to approach it from a standpoint of, of uh, a theologian and, and from an academic standpoint, but at the same time having an element that what w- the things you just said there that, that there is an experience because I think that's missed too often. But um, the uh, you mentioned the power of laughter, what Anne Lamott calls the carbonated version of the Holy Spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. How has laughter been powerful for you in your life? Oh, laughter is ecstatic. You lose control when you laugh. There's a a flow to laughter. I think um, we have to laugh together. It's a, one of my brilliant colleagues, Pamela Kutcher, will say, if you're not laughing in a faculty meeting, you're not actually getting anything done. And it's so important to hit that moment of laughter because that's where things begin to integrate and actually happen. It's where we become human to each other. I think the... You know, when we say the language of ecstasy, everyone thinks sex, but ecstasy comes in many forms, and laughter is one of them. Uh, you write about uh, salvation not being about where we spend eternity. Um, what is salvation and the goal of those who seeking are seeking it then? For me, salvation is always attached to the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and the inbreaking of God's um, rule. Uh, the inbreaking of God's reconstitution of creation into the way that God wants it to be. And so salvation is being drawn into that remaking, um, not in you know, not in a purely individualistic sense, but in the way in which I am grounded in that creation. I am a part of that creation. And God's making that whole creation new. And uh, I am invited to be a part of that, um, not in and for myself, but in the location within the whole that God wants me to have. That's how I think of salvation. And it's the inbreaking. We have glimmers and glimpses of that as we go along, and that's the sanctification part of, of salvation, that um, we can see that kingdom manifest just beyond the, the periphery of our vision and, and catch it, catch it into our bodies in a way that um, lets God slowly sanctify us towards that end. And, and is that related? There's a place where you wrote something about um, that we'll never actually live with God fully until we shake this mortal coil. Is that, you know, because there are other traditions who believe we can have as intimate a relationship with God now as we will when we die and other. Yeah, I don't think the. No, no not fully. <laughs> no, not until. And I don't mean shake off my body. I just mean shake off the divide. Uh, that's what I mean by mortal coil. It's shaking off the. Um, just the fullness of the revelation of, oh, okay. of we can glimpse the fullness I don't think we're glimpsing parts right. we can glimpse it but we can't hold it well and the mystery I guess that's the, one, the mystery of the ages is, is a mystery is something you could never fully wrap your hands around or mind around there's, a, there's no longer a mystery once you do and it would explode me into a Right. Exactly. If you believe this is, if you believe what you're, you know, what you're saying, uh, um, you mentioned spiritual warfare in the book. What is spiritual warfare? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a decontextualized statement, but I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about. I didn't tell you this was going to be easy. <laughs> like the classic uh, charismatic Pentecostal: there are demons all around us, and they're attacking us, and they're trying to make us fall, and you know, screw tape letters kind of stuff. Like there is a. Um, there's an evil in this world that lures us, that tempts us to its side. Okay, so I don't believe in like little devils with pitchforks, although I'm not saying they're not they're not a thing either. Um, but 
there are forces of evil. There are forces of evil, even if we only think of them as systems of power and privilege, structural racism, structural misogyny, um, you know, all the all of the ways that liberals talk about original sin without calling it original sin. There are powers of evil that lure us. Um, whether they're agential or not, I'm not sure. Um, but there is there is evil in this world. And there is also a temptation towards that evil, if only in the smallest forms. Um, we're all connected to it somehow. And that is a there are forms of Christianity that think of that as a war, as a battleground, and that's not a metaphor that I'm quite ready um, to give up on, even though it's, you know, quote-unquote problematic. Nevertheless, if evil's trying to get you, got to fight it. Well, I mean, to push back a little there, I will say that warfare is, is an absolute, uh, you know, solid analogy as one who was involved in the civil rights movement and got hitting the head with rocks and bottles and stuff it was warfare i mean you yeah. were you know working for justice and trying to bring equity and and um so i mean there is a real sense of literal physical warfare involved sometimes when you're uh standing up for injustice and, and putting yourself out there yeah i think it's another one of the you know these metaphors that are found to be again quote unquote problematic um it, you can often dismiss those metaphors from a place of great privilege, and I want to be wary of doing that um, because I embody so much privilege. I, I want to still attend to uh, the ways in which these metaphors shape people's lives immensely, and thank you for that work. Yeah. And I really, one of the things I wanted to kind of wrap it up, one of the things I really, one of my favorite phrases in the book, uh, and I, I like I said, I finished it late last night. I'm trying to see if I've got the exact quote here. But you define our capacity for spiritual experience when you suggest that there is an abundant flow of spirit, but by necessity our cup remains too small to receive it. Can you kind of expound on that just a little bit? I think that's a really amazing metaphor. Oh, thank you. I know what section that's in. There's a bunch of metaphors in there that I don't quite understand, but I was getting artsy towards the end. Hey, <laughs> artsy is always good. Uh, to, to, to quote Hans Ruckmacher, the former uh, uh, professor of art at the Free, uh, Free Institute of Amsterdam, he said, art needs no justification. So, <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. I need that definitely in the closing pages. Um, no, but that one I'm thinking of the ritual. There's a ritual that you can do. It's a Jewish ritual, I think, um, where you pour blessings into a cup with wine. And um, when my mom and stepdad were getting married, we, we did this as we were planning the wedding where they poured uh, wine into a cup and um, of all the blessings for their marriage, the things they wanted to bless each other with. And um, and we had based this on the, the Siobhan Garrigan, who I mentioned before, when she married my spouse and I, we did the same ritual. We just, we poured into the cup until the cup overflowed. And then we drank from the overflow. And, um, you know, the cup was full enough, we could never have drunk the whole thing. Um, but there was something to that overflow that felt really powerful. Like the blessings are so immense that they cannot be held. And that's the kind of spirituality that we are called to as Christians. We're not called to something neat and tidy. We're called to something that is the capacity to destroy us, and yet the destruction is the is the overflow, this overflow of grace. Well, I think we better stop it for now. Uh, I'd like to have you back again sometime. I've enjoyed it. What, what is your next project? 
I am I'm working on two things. I have a research leave coming up. So one is that I um, am working on a website companion to Transgressive Devotion, which is a, a website devotional guide that uh, primarily designed for ministers but and also quirky Christians who need a bit of a, who are looking for how to engage with this in a more devotional way by taking some of the core themes of the book and giving creative activities around them. And that should launch this summer. Um, I'm also working on a memoir, a uh, spiritual life writing memoir. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping to get a good chunk of that written this fall. So you can keep an eye out for that one too. Well, transgressional devotion, transgressive devotion, I want to get it right. Theology is performance art. You can get it at Amazon. Um, I've found that I found you to be swimming in the deep pool of orthodoxy, Natalie. I enjoyed it, and I uh, hope other people who want to have time to sit down and, and read something that will be thought-provoking will give it a shot. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me on. This was great fun. I enjoyed it, and I'm going to cut it right there. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I, enjoy, I, always, I, I appreciate you taking time. It went a little longer than I expected, but I really enjoyed talking to you. And like I said, maybe we can ex pick a couple of these ideas and hit them again several months down the road. Let me know. I'm in. Check out our book. Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. You can get it at Amazon, and it is a really interesting read. It's, it's nothing. It's like nothing I've read recently, and that's always refreshing. Join me again next time for the Thinking God podcast when we'll look for truth and wisdom wherever it might be found. God in a war, no one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when a doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from that party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in someone else and they hope that they're mistaken no one laughs at god when the cops knock on their door and they say we got some bad news sir no one's laughing at god when there's a famine fire or flood but god could be funny at a cocktail party while listening to a good god theme joke or when the crazy say he hates us and they get so red in the head you think they're about to choke god could be funny when told to give you money if you just pray the right way And when presented like a genie with his magic like Houdini Or grand swishes like Jiminy Cricket and Santa Claus God can be so hilarious